Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Midway through, I'm sorry, midway through that. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and everyone else, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I thought I'd begin on a bright note. There's a great danger uh, as I, um, who, I, I listen to a lot of sermons, I, I read a, a fair amount of books, um, talk to a lot of people who are Christian and not Christian, and I see a great danger of people reading this as a metaphor or hyperbole. Now, Jesus tells a story, a, a parable, um, he uses a teaching method we call hyperbole, that is, you say something extreme. So Jesus says, if your right hand sins, what do you do with it? Cut it off. If your eye offends you, what should you do? Wow, man, you guys are a morbid group. <laughs> now, we have to understand, because um, I lived in the hills of Tennessee for a while, and they would take that quite literally. I know stories of people taking that literally. Jesus' hope when he tells this is not that he would have a bunch of followers who are blind and handless. His hope is that you would see how deadly sin is and you would flee from it. Now, this is different than what Paul is saying here. Because this is central to Paul's argument. Paul is not using metaphor. He's not using hyperbole. He's not saying, well, listen, y'all are just really bad. He is saying this, no one is good. Now, every inclination in the heart of humans is to bring all of our defense mechanisms against this, this claim, to deny it, to equivocate, to obfuscate, to find some way around it, to say, well, hold on a second, I'm not perfect, but you can't say I'm not good at all. The worldly wise will say, how, how dare you say, I don't understand. We understand so much more than you ever knew, Paul. We're smarter than you. We're smarter than the scriptures. We know more. We are wise. The religious person will say, how dare you say, I don't seek God. I do all kinds of seeking in God. You should see all the Deepak Chakra, whatever his last name is, is on my shelf. The pious churchgoer, been in church their whole life, will say, how dare you say I turned aside? I've been in church my whole life. Self-assured will say, worthless? Worthless? How dare you call me worthless? I'm not worthless. I'm worth everything. 
The activist will say, I spent all kinds of time doing internet good. Did you see my latest post? The prude will say, I don't say nasty things. I don't have deceit on my tongue. In fact, I think everyone in this room would say, well, I'm, you know, I, I might not always be honest, but I'm not a liar. The conservative will say, oh, now, how, now don't, don't put me there. I am not swift to show, shed blood. And the liberal will say, how dare you? We are the only ones who know the way of peace. And yet the condemnation is on all. No one is good. We are quick to shed blood. We forget the ways of peace. Lies, deceit, curse, bitterness, all of this is upon our lips. And every time we bring defense barriers and defense mechanisms and excuses and and whatever else you might have, every time we bring that to bear to reject what Paul is saying here, we move further and further away from God, quicker and quicker to descend deeper in the darkness as we self-deceive. As we say, now hold on a second, that's not me. Because as Matt pointed out, We can't bear the light. The Messiah, the Savior, says everyone who does wicked hates the light. Everyone who is not good hates the light. Doesn't come into the light. Because if they came into the light, the darkness of our deeds would be exposed. And we would have to lay ourselves bare by being honest with ourselves and say, No, I am am not good. But we can't bear that. And so we hide. We hide. And we quickly run to others who will say, don't listen to that old book. Don't listen to that old book. Paul knows he's talking about. Jesus is just a story. Don't listen to that old book. And in so doing, not only do we prove the words of the Messiah to be true, but we prove the last line of verse 18 to be true. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the root of all of this. There is no fear of God before their eyes because if there was a fear of God before our eyes, we would stay silent under the accusation that we are guilty. We would say, yeah, that's true. And verse 19 would hold us in our tracks. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. For what reason? So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world held accountable to God. And so I make my first plea this morning with you, and my plea is this, that you will stop making excuses if you're here today and you've never become a Christian, you've been ignoring the light, you've, you've thought about it but you haven't stepped into it, I plead with you to stop making excuses because they won't stand before God on judgment day and all you're doing is self-deceiving work. Ephesians 2.1 says that... Uh, We are dead in our trespasses and our sin. That we live according to the passions of the flesh. Isn't that true? Isn't that true of even those of us who who struggle and strive to follow Jesus? Doesn't our flesh sometimes say, this is what I want to do, even while our mind knows that's wrong? Yeah? 
according to the ways of this world, the passions of the flesh, carrying out our desires, the body and the mind. Therefore, we are called by nature, by nature, by nature, children of wrath. And I know every force of media and every popular preacher and everything within ourselves tells us to deny that truth. Don't listen, but rather hear the word of the Lord to you today. A word that pleads with you to recognize who and what you are by nature so that that nature can be changed. This, you see, is the dividing line between the true believer and everyone else. Notice I say the true believer because there are people in this room today, people who have called themselves Christians who are not. Who have treated Christianity or treated the church or treated God himself as though this was some kind of Boy Scout meeting where you do your woodworking and you do your water sports and maybe you get a few volunteer badges and you wear that vest and you hope that that makes you right before God and yet the scriptures say no and let you let the scriptures cut you and let you expose the fact that you are a wretched sinner in need of the grace of God. You have no part in him. And so the true believer... The person who really hears is the person who says to God, you are right. It's the first step of belief. You are right. I am a grievous sinner deserving your judgment because I am guilty. And here is the turn of hope, the only place where the hope can spin and turn. Because if we don't recognize the place in which we are, we can never recognize the place in which God wants to bring redemption. And so once we get to the place of saying, yeah, you are right, Paul, I am not good at all. And of my own will and of my own thinking and of my own abilities, I am completely and utterly lost. I am a sinner and I am in need of salvation. Here we come to a great word There is hope. Those who do receive him, those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called the children of God. Children not born of blood, not born of the will of the Father, but born of God himself. And here comes the important question that we consider not only today, but in the next consecutive um, Sundays. How? How is it possible? How can I, a rebel sinner, a person who continually, and I have to say continually because this week I was not perfect. How do I, as a rebel sinner, have the ability to say I have peace with God? What makes that possible? Verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has appeared and been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness 
of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all, all have sinned and they have fallen short of the glory of God. And they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the implications and the parts of this verse, uh, of these verses as we talked about. We're, we're looking at the broad overarching uh, principles here. And, and using this word saved, which we use so often, is actually a very complex piece of moving parts which bring us to a point where we can stand before God one day and say we are saved. But I want you to notice, before we get to the kind of word of the day, I want you to notice the beginning of verse 25. Whom God put forward. And I want you to notice that as we went through these verses, that each and every time that we see an activity or an action, we are the recipients, but God is the mover. God is the one who acts. God is the one who who does something first, bringing forward a hope of redemption to the people who had no hope. 1 John um, First John chapter 4, verse 10 says it like this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Consider the weight of this mercy. That all of the righteousness, glory, honor, purity, holiness of God and all of our unrighteousness and purity and violence and hatred and lust and greed and bitterness. And in our vile state, God steps in and seeks to reconcile you. This is how God pleads with you. He begins by saying, this is who you are. But this isn't who you have to be, if that makes sense. Now, I hope you notice the connection um, here. These two words use propitiation. This is our word for the day. And every time I've brought this up as the title for the sermon, I get strange looks because this is not a word we use in everyday life. Has anybody used this in everyday life? To, no? Okay. That's all right. That's okay. Uh, it's, it's, a big, it's a big fancy word, and, and, and hopefully as we leave this place, you'll have a deep appreciation for it. Some of your Bibles will translate verse 25 with this word. It will, it will say, um, uh, the, uh, God, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Some of your Bibles might say something like atoning sacrifice, which isn't a bad translation, but this is just kind of the word in short. And what this means is simply this, that there is, um, just the root of the word, there is an offended party, and you are going to offer something to make peace with that offended party. That's what the word atonement means, to make peace between. And so I often use uh, the story of the first Mother's Day in our household um, after Emery was born, and I forgot that Laura was a mother. Yeah. 
which I still don't really, I, I still don't think is a big deal, like honestly. I just, I, all you mothers can hate me. I, I, you know what? I don't even care. If she had forgotten it was Father's Day, wouldn't have cared any less, but it meant a lot to her, and she was offended. And I don't remember what I did, but it still hasn't been enough because we continue to hear about this every once in a while, not often, not often, but every once in a while, because this was a great error on my part. I needed to make peace, and we continue to work on this. Um, This is what marriage is, right? Continual maintenance and work. (laughs) In the best sense of the word. That sounded badly, but I didn't mean it that way. We're going to move away from this now. Believe that we're done here. You get the idea. There is an offended party. Now, in terms of us, we have offended God by breaking his law. Now, some of us very specifically, if you grew up in the church, you know a whole lot more about the Bible and what God wants and doesn't want than, let's say, maybe you came in the church this morning and you've never read a Bible in your life. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Don't be intimidated by big fancy words like propitiation. And also don't make mistakes about using your wife as examples for those words. Um, but we understand that God has a will and he has created the world in a certain way and all of us has a, have a sense of conscience, all of us have a sense of right and wrong and we know, each and every one of us, that we have done at least, maybe at least convince you of this, at least as much wrong as we have right. The Bible says you've done way more wrong than you have done right. In fact, you really haven't done any right. Um, but this is the sense. And in so doing, we have offended God. God is, God is angry. There is this word that we use, wrath, the wrath of God. There probably isn't a more unpopular phrase I could use today than the wrath of God. Um, and whether it's because we're afraid that it's true, I think that's the root. Or whether it's because we become so arrogant as human beings as to deny the scriptures and what they say... Whichever reason is, it's a very unpopular thing to talk about. And yet the whole of Scripture says that God's attitude towards sin is one of wrath. God's great mercy came upon the Israelites in the Old Testament. That's the the back half of your Bible. Recognizing that they were a stiff-necked and rebellious people. In fact, you see them all the time. God calls them that. Moses calls them that. Everyone calls them that. These people aren't really that great. They're really a pain in the butt. And they refuse to listen to God. And God, they build a golden calf. They worship a, a god of a mountain, and a mountain called Peor. They, they take censuses in, in rejecting God's providence. They, they do all kinds of things, and, and God continues to reach out to them. Well, he made provision for them in something called the Day of Atonement. It's found in Leviticus chapter 16. Hebrews 9 is also, that's in your New Testament, is, is a great little portion that defines and talks about this. And what happened was, once a year, the sin of the people was dealt with. As the priest would sacrifice a lamb, bringing the blood into the temple, then into the Holy of Holies, that is this room that was completely blocked off, and put the blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant, a box upon which, or within which was the covenant, the, the terms of their agreement that God would be their God and they would be their people. He would, they would be his people. And they put the blood, the high priest would put the blood upon the mercy seat to seek to propitiate God, to make atonement and to bring peace between God and between the people. Now, 
in the New Testament, as we have read just in this text here, what God has done now, what was done in secret in the past, has now made displayed in public by Jesus' crucifixion. That what was done just once a year, and then other sacrifices that were made daily, has now been done once for all. That there has been eternal redemption that has been brought forth by Jesus Christ for our sins. God has been appeased. Put it that way. Now let me, let me take it in a three-step process then. Maybe, maybe this will be helpful for us. We'll do it this way. First, God's wrath against the sin and the sinner. Now we recognize that sin in of itself is not a thing. We must break God's law and that breaking of the law is sin. So God hates both the breaking of his law, but he also feels wrath toward the person who breaks his law. And I want to pause over this idea of of the wrath of God for just a second because some of you grew up in abusive households. And when I say this, you think of an outraged parent who goes nuts maybe and and is abusive, uh, maybe verbally or physically. This is not what is being communicated in this text. I want to be very plain, plain and clear about this. What is being said here is that there is a God who is holy and just and good. And in his perfection and holiness, if you want relationship to him, he demands that same perfection and holiness. And as a judge, you can imagine this, a judge who has the ability to bring forward a life sentence in prison or the death penalty or something like that. That judge has the ability to bring the full weight and power of the law against the lawbreaker. You with me? And that intensity and that greatness of the weight of that righteous judgment could be characterized by wrath. It isn't as though God is walking around just ticked off, just waiting to slug us, you know. Um, We have some very weird and very unbiblical concepts of God as though he is just sort of waiting for you to mess up so he can throw some wrath your way. This is not what is being communicated here. Rather, it is putting God at the highest pinnacle our human minds can conceive of in holiness and justice and rightness and glory and honor and in praise and seeing what we have done with the world. Flip on the news, man. See what we have done with our lives. The two don't go together. And God's justice and his character and his righteousness have not only been offended, but the judgment he has to bring against the rebel sinner is so great we could characterize it by this word wrath. Everything that I have thought, felt, or done that I should not have thought, felt, or done, everything that I did not do that I should have done, I will be held accountable for. But... But grace, right? Here's the good news. Two, the wrath of God is satisfied. It's set aside. It's, 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 it's atoned for. It's, it's moved aside. It's covered over. We can use all kinds of metaphors to get, get at that. Why? Because 
Jesus Christ, whom God put forth. Now, we have offended God's will. We have broken God's law. We have messed up God's creation. We have messed up our lives, which are a gift from God. And yet, what has God done? As the righteous judge, who has the right to judge us, the offended party, God has said, you guys are still so messed up. You can't do this, so I'll send my son. And I will appease my own wrath. I will bring redemption. I will buy you back by Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. Thus, the God's wrath against the sinner and the sin is satisfied in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the scriptures say, is our peace. He is both the agency of how we receive peace. He is the peace that we have internally as the Holy Spirit fills us. He is the peace that we have as we engage in the world, taking on the image of the crucified ones, the Christians. He is our peace. At the cross, from Psalm 85, verse 10, at the cross, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. God has done this he has made propitiation he has brought all of the wrath that he had to bear upon us upon jesus so that we might be called the children of god redeemed by grace that's heavy that's good news that's amazing news i want to bring some application uh, into this before we leave Today, and the first point I want to just hammer home again is that God put Jesus forth, right? And so, what we should walk away from as we read these texts and say, Man, you are a really terrible person, but God loves you so much that God put forth. Is that the version? Does that sound like a God, a wrathful God? No, wrath is, a character, is not a characteristic of God. It is a response of God. The characteristic, you understand the difference, I hope. The characteristic of God is love. That is who God is. God is love. But his response, which is just as important, his response to sin is wrath. And the way that he has fulfilled his justice and characteristicness of love is by taking care of our sin through the death of Jesus Christ. God put forth. God put forth. So this, I think, brings forward then two really important final applications. The first one has two sub-points here. The first one is that sin matters. Sin matters, and our version and understanding of sin and our practice of sin matters. First, toward the believers, you here today who say, I'm a Christian, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, speaks directly to you. For if we continue to deliberately sin after gaining a knowledge of the truth, So if you know the truth of God and you have continued to sin over and over and over again, you've received God's grace, you you repented, you believed, you were baptized, all those things, you had that moment, and yet what have you done? You've walked away from that moment, you've walked away from Christ, and you continue to deliberately walk according to your passions and to the sin. Hebrews 10 tells us there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You've already spit on it. You've walked away from it. You've ignored it. 
There's no other sacrifice. Jesus is it. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There's nothing else aside from Jesus. So if you have received that, and then you say, ah, I'm going to go and continue to sin over and over and over again, ignoring both his sacrifice and his love and his judgment and his wrath, there is no new sacrifice that can be made for you. So what's left? What should you expect, even though you call yourself a Christian? What should you expect? Verse 27, fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, if you look in the Old Testament, and you see all the laws that God did, all that God did for them there um, at Sinai, and giving them grace. Anybody who said, you know what, I I thank you God for your grace, and I want to continue to to follow you, except for I don't want to do uh, commandment one, two, three, and seven. I don't know what those are off the top of my head. But let's just say you did that. What would be the result? Very good. Yes. We got our own sound effects department over here. Yeah. Constant maintenance and anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment then do you think will be deserved upon those who have trampled upon the Son of God, who have profaned the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. For we know the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and that the Lord will judge his people. And so it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you are a believer here today, and this in any way characterizes you, today is the day of repentance. Because sin is important. Sin matters. If you aren't a believer today, I would point you to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, which says, For if the judgment of God begins with the household of God, and if it begins with us, if it begins with those of us who call themselves Christians, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God at all? And as the prophet has said, if the righteous can scarcely be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so there is this heavy weight that lays upon us as we come to recognize God's holiness and the way that he made for us to become holy as well. Through the propitiation, through the blood, the redemption that was made possible in Jesus Christ. And so I plead with us today, if you don't know Jesus, come to know him and accept that gift. If you do know Jesus, put aside sin. Walk in it no more. See what God has done for you and reach out to him and holiness, but not just holiness. The last point. Did I spell immense wrong? Is there two M's in that? I knew it. I knew it. Ignore this. (laughs) Pretend there's an extra M right there. I was looking at my notes and I was like, yep, yep, I did that wrong. Immense joy. What is the purpose of Paul? What, I like, let's, so you, we, we've, read, we've read Romans. We read last week Romans 1, kind of dim, kind of dark. And we read a little bit here in Romans 3, equally not great beginnings, really laying heavy upon us the weight of our sin, God calling us to recognize it, to see it, to obey it, to be there for it. What is 
Paul's goal? Does he want us to just be like, oh, shucks, man, I'll never be saved. Does he want us to just sit here and think, woe is me, oh, man, I'm, I'm so guilty and terrible and awful and God could never love me. No, of course not, right? That's, that's not at all the point. The point is that we would see the propitiation of Jesus. We would see how Jesus steps in between God's righteous judgment against the unrighteous sinner, how Jesus steps in and takes the full weight of the judgment so that we might be called the children of God. Paul wants us to walk away with immense joy. If you have been saved by Jesus, you should be excited. The prophet says in Isaiah chapter 53, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We looked at him and we saw him stricken. We saw him beaten by God. We saw him afflicted. We saw him pierced for our transgressions. We saw him crushed for our sins. We saw that upon him was the chastisement that we deserved and that that chastisement has brought us peace. That which we didn't deserve, that which we didn't earn, that which we could never deserve, that which we could never earn. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. There's a hymn that uh, we sung in Tennessee. In fact, I should have Laura, I should have Laura do it if I was a better planner. She does a great rendition of this. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but now can be justified by his grace as a gift because of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God chose to put forward to be the propitiation by his blood and to be received by faith. That's good news. As we come to a conclusion this morning, if you have not received that good news, today is your day of redemption. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to lay hold of the the, the throne of God, to lay hold of the cross of Christ and not let go until God pours his salvation out over you. If you as a Christian have walked in the ways of sin, if you have forgotten who you are and you need to repent, Now is also the day of salvation. We'll have an elder down front to pray with you. We'll be down front to pray with you if you need anything. We have an invitation that just stands if you you want to come down front and make a claim. In the blood of Jesus, today is the day. If you already have laid claim to that, today is the day of joy. And stand as we sing this song, remembering the great love of God. 
how he has loved us.